Everyone Deserves a Place to Call Home is a collection of stories about people's experiences of homelessness. Funded by the Town of Victoria Park, the project acknowledges that homelessness can be defined in many different ways and affects many different people, and aims to raise awareness because shelter is a basic human right and everyone deserves a place to call home. This is Z's story. Given the intersections that I occupy, the statistics say that I am much more likely to experience homelessness, domestic violence, mental health issues, addiction and sexual assault. I never allowed myself to think of myself in those ways, despite having experienced all of it. I'm telling a story of loss, uncertainty, unbecoming, being unanchored, yet resolute and resilient. Home is found within, I'm told, and whilst that can change, I have been the only constant in my life. I've experienced homelessness twice, and both times they've never looked like homelessness. I've never slept on the streets, so to speak. For me, homelessness is never over, even after feeling like I found a home. There's a deep knowledge that I have now that I'm much closer to being homeless than I'll ever be to being a billionaire. And it's not a character flaw despite my brain's constant attempt to convince me otherwise. The concept of a safety net existing for me is a privilege and I've had to painstakingly weave my own. I've wanted stability for as long as I can remember. I've worked eight long, hard years to achieve that financial stability and job security, and it was ripped from underneath me all of a sudden. Just when I thought I had made it, it was all over. I'd never had much stability and reassurance growing up, not much of it anyway, and that's why I worked as hard as I did at uni. My degree and academics were my meal ticket, my driving force. Just one more exam, another year, another degree, and I will never need anyone again. I'll be fully independent. (laughs) And I was quickly proven very wrong and that I would always need community and friends and that I was nothing without that and I can never control it all. Hard work, unfortunately, does not equal ease in this life or this society. I had left my home initially in 2016 to move in with my partner at the time, who later became my fiancé, and the situation turned quite dire about a year later and I found myself needing a place to sleep. It all happened within the space of hours. I went from having a home, a partner, a family to nothing in the blink of an eye. I just happened to speak to this lady in charge of uni hall at UWA and she managed to find me a room on really short notice that I could stay in for two weeks. I had to restart my life again and I moved into a small studio shortly after that. Medical issues meant that moving back in with my parents was needed shortly after though. This was my first experience with homelessness. It was narrowly avoided, but the fear had started then. A little small bud, uh, a seed. In 2019, I found it happening again. I was mere months away from graduating, finally, after eight years, to study to become a dentist. My living situation was becoming more and more dicey and untenable, and I did the best that I could to cope. But emotionally, it became unbearable. I quite literally left with the shirt on my back, my wallet, and my phone. I stayed on my cousin's bedroom floor for two weeks. I called shelters. I was rejected from Centrelink because I could not prove that I was an independent unless I had a new address that wasn't my parents' house. I didn't qualify for FOIA Oxford because I wasn't on that independent rate, and so I fell through the cracks. 
I didn't have much to my name and that fear that I had had in 2017 had grown into a full flower. It had bloomed and taken over the garden and snaked its roots deep into me. I knew I had to do something, so that fear made me get a job as an assistant restaurant manager and I worked 40 hours a week whilst trying to go to uni Monday to Friday, 8am to 5pm every single day. I tried my best not to tell anyone at university. I was embarrassed it had happened to me again, to be honest. A few tutors found out and the head of my year group and they showed me a lot of kindness. People brought me food to class and that's a next level of shame, but I really wasn't in the position not to accept it. My friend ended up letting me stay in her spare room for very cheap to no rent until I finished and graduated. And I don't ever think that I managed to properly thank her, even though I know I said thank you. It just never really felt enough. What she did for me was literally life-saving. I remember days that I had no energy to go into uni and look after myself, let alone be responsible for other people's care. I remember feeling exposed, like a raw nerve ending, sensitised and ready to jump at any minute, ready to pack my bag and bolt. I ended up graduating, having to do two weeks of extra clinic time for all that time that I had missed. My father came to my graduation. He was in the audience, but I didn't see him much, to be honest. My mother never did. Um, We weren't on speaking terms at that time, and my brother and sister did not come either. I remember looking around at the shiny dresses and the freshly pressed suits, the beaming smiles, the families who had flown thousands of kilometres to see their children achieve such a momentous task. I remember the warmth, the pride, the sound of the phone cameras, the flowers, the warm embraces. The pride radiated through the crowd. It was electric and I felt like I was insulated, like I was behind a glass pane. Alone, unseen, an imposter, much of what I felt about my life was distilled down into a singular moment. It was like looking at crystallised evidence at the bottom of a glass that had held too much for too long. I felt the depth of what I had lost in that moment. I felt the gaping pit in the place my stomach used to be. Family and home, the two could never be separated for me and will always remain intertwined. After graduating, I spent about three to four months saving money and stabilising myself financially. I realised that maybe I could afford my own little apartment in the city, which meant the absolute world to me. Fun fact, dentists only make money when they bill or they produce or they work. If we show up to work and no one walks in the door, we don't get paid anything. Not a minimum hourly rate, nothing. Um, So we're very much sold traders and we work off commission. So you make a percentage of what you bill. The faster you work or the more you're willing to charge or bill out, the more you take home. So obviously the balance is quite fine between overcharging and charging for what you're worth. And there's a huge ethical component to that um, that dentists have to navigate. There is no paid leave, there's no sick leave, there's no superannuation paid. Um, So if you become incapacitated in any sense, that's pretty much it. Um, And at that time, I had just signed my lease. So this was late March to mid-April in 2020. And the pandemic really took hold in those two weeks. Um, I lost 60% of my work overnight. 
I went from six days a week to two and a half days at best in a reduced capacity. And I figured out that all that I had worked for and built was very abruptly, once again, pulled out from underneath me. At that time, government assistance wasn't very clear and I spiralled. I ended up trying to end my life and was admitted to a public psychiatric facility south of the river. Um, I remember on my second or third day at the hospital, the lead psychiatrist had an interview with me. I remember how cold and glacial the room felt. My father actually came and he was sitting in the room next to me. But I can't quite remember everything. It feels like someone dripped that memory in honey. It feels slow and hazy and can't remember much of the details. But I do remember one thing. One thing was quite clear and it cut through me like a hot knife cuts through butter. The psychiatrist asked me how I tried to do it. How I told him how I obtained such a large quantity of medication, how I had mixed it with alcohol, how disappointed I was when I woke up okay, how the nurse had been confused, how I survived my overdose when I shouldn't have. The psychiatrist told me, if I ever see you in here again or you attempt again, I will report you to APRA and the board as being unfit for practice. I realised at that time how alone I was how I could never speak about this again, how vulnerable I was in that moment, that it could all be taken from me before it had even begun. I remember only being discharged into the care of my dad with a prescription for the very medication I had tried to overdose on. I've never dispensed it. It still sits in my bathroom cabinet, an eerie reminder of how close I got. I don't think I can ever quite get rid of it. I remember my dad had to pick up my apartment keys because I still hadn't been discharged. And so I went straight from the hospital to my new home. The keys sat on my lap on the ride there and I kept clutching at them. The weight of them in my hands, the feel of the cold metal, it felt real. I had a home. It was mine. My name was on the lease for a whole year and it was the closest thing that I had had to security in months. I posted a photo of the keys and people had assumed I bought the place from the way that I was going on. It was a furnished place on the fourth level among the trees. It had a gorgeous view of the city and it made me feel elevated and protected like I could not be touched anymore. The floorboards were that perfect tone of dark wood and I had a large sprawling bed and a triple wardrobe. It was on one of the most scenic streets in West Perth, a far cry from my reality in a small spare room with holes in the floorboards and decades of rundown. I was scared to fill the apartment at first, to unpack the boxes, to settle. And even now I've moved again, this time into a little house in South Perth. I've been there for just over a year and I only just unpacked my books in March. I always felt like I couldn't take up space to ground, to root myself and say that this place is mine and you will not take it from me. I'd always felt like an imposter, weak, fragile, unworthy, undeserving. It wasn't like my life experiences or anyone around me showed me anything different. I always felt unsure of who I was and deeply anxious. Being a perfectionist, being thrown into homelessness caused me to need to escape in a multitude of ways. It fed into using and abusing prescription medication as well as excessive alcohol use, impulsive behaviours in my intimate relationships, 
both during and after my homelessness experiences. I even feel like an imposter saying that I've experienced unstable living and homelessness because people are always surprised when I say that I have these experiences and either don't believe me or praise me for where I am far too much. The truth is much uglier than that. So many people that you know, that you love, you work with, have experienced homelessness in some way or living instability. It doesn't just look like sleeping rough. I struggle with the symptoms from that trauma every day, feeling unable to spend money or splurge on myself, obsessing over having a safety net financially, and I absolutely hate working on commission even though I out-earn what I likely would on a fixed salary, and it's all just because of the instability. I panic whenever there's any tension in my house or between my housemates. It quickly escalates into me thinking I will be on the street in the matter of hours because it has in the past. Living with partners will always be a big struggle for me and not something I cope with well because how will I get out if it all goes bad? I feel like I can never fully unwind or relax because the fear of ending up back there could be anything from a bad relationship to a very quiet month of work or lockdowns or restrictions, shutting down my sector or limiting the hours that I could work. It caused me to work six days a week when I first graduated just because of that fear. Being stuck in a scarcity mindset, the paranoia, the fatigue and the burnout, you can feel that in your bones. It's like being stuck in hypervigilance and feeling like at the same time I'm dissociating through life, like I'm on autopilot but still in survival mode. It feels like I am at any point only cycling through trauma responses, fight, flight, freeze, fawn, on repeat. I've grown resentful of everyone who had people they could lean on, safe homes to return to if their job or relationship went south, people to call home, places that would feel secure. All I ever wanted was security, and COVID took that last little bit that I had. I realised that all of my efforts could be thwarted in the blink of an eye. And it hasn't made me a better person. It's left me bitter and it's left me jaded. People tell me how much they admire me, how the trauma made me strong and resilient, and it didn't. It stole the light from my eyes, energy that I needed and could have been spending on other things. It made me weak, exhausted, distrustful, anxious and unwell. It broke me. Because who are you without a place to call home? When your belongings are scattered across four different locations and you forget what you even own because you had to leave it all at once and run in the middle of the night, where do you run to where you have nowhere to go but you can't go back there, what was once home? Homelessness affects you at your core. Every single part of you, no part of your identity remains untouched. Shelter is not a privilege, it is a right and it's a need because without it, how can you even begin to hope or dream a life for yourself? My story might have different details, but it is by no means unique. Scores of our youth face the same risks and will carry the trauma for many years, affecting every relationship, job, interaction they have for decades to come. And I wouldn't have made it by myself. Community and friends at times were the only things that I had. And at times, the only thing between me and the cliff edge of utter loss and rock bottom was someone going above and beyond in their job. I don't have a happy ending for you. 
I don't have an it gets better or that I overcame some huge battle. All I know is that tonight I have a roof over my head, but that could change if I am not careful. It is something that I have to guard vigilantly. And whilst that might seem like an overreaction, it is my most innate instinct. No amount of money saved, investments accrued, working hours accumulated will dispense with that fear. I know that this is something that I have to live with and I try and be grateful for where I am, soaking up the sweet moments of comfort on my vintage couch on a sun-drenched patio with a cup of tea, the feeling of my cats at my feet purring away, the giggles in the kitchen with my housemates, shared meals and tender conversations after long days. I try to remember that I am safe, safe in my bones and safe in my body and safe in my home. It's all I can do to soothe myself and continue to try enjoying the present. The past is a warning, but I hope that it won't be an anchor that keeps me submerged in fear. Thank you for listening. Centre for Stories is a not-for-profit organisation with charitable status. Our team is small and nimble and we love what we do. To help us to continue to support diverse storytellers, consider a small donation. You can donate at centreforstories.com.